There are many reasons people are hesitant to talk to reporters. Some fear retaliation for speaking out. Others worry about the impact a story might have on their family. Many have seen their communities misrepresented, especially from the national media. But when Howard Burkus, a reporter with NPR's investigative team, started looking into advanced black lung cases among Appalachian coal miners, he knew he would have to deal with all of those concerns. But when talking to one key source, he was confronted with a fourth major problem. It was hard for the source to physically talk. But right away, the process of talking was really hard for him. And it got harder the more he, uh, the more he talked, the longer the interview went on. Um, he began to struggle for breath between every word. If you check the federal data, the disease killing this former miner might seem like an isolated example. According to the agency that tracks black lung, fewer than 100 cases of the disease were even detected from 2011 to 2016. But it didn't take long for Howard to discover that those numbers were off, way off. The independent scientists agree that um, this is an indication of uh, what they've called the one of the worst uh, medical industrial disasters in American history. On today's episode, Irie's Emily Hopkins talks with Howard about his reporting, including how he was able to tackle one of the most stereotyped industries in the U.S., uncover a massive problem, and publish an investigation that sparks significant change. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In some respects, federal data collection is a national treasure. Regulatory agencies use it to inform their policies, Congress uses it to write bills, and journalists use it to tell stories. But what happens when a source tells you something that's just not in the numbers? That's the situation NPR correspondent Howard Burkus found himself in last summer when he received a text message. Uh, this text message came from somebody who intersects with uh, the black lung world from time to time. And the text message basically was, um, we're seeing an awful lot of black lung cases. The clinics are slammed, the medical clinics are slammed, uh, and the lawyers are slammed with cases. We don't know what's going on. And that's what clued me to the idea that uh, something pretty significant was going on. Since the 1960s, more than 70,000 people have died from black lung in the United States. It's a disease that is well known in coal country, where most people either know or are related to someone who has died from the disease. Miners inhale coal dust, which settles in the lungs. The body fights back, creating fibrotic tissue, a kind of scarring that prevents the lung from functioning properly. In a report last December, Howard shared his findings, and here's the big one. Howard's reporting suggested that federal agencies were drastically undercounting cases of the most serious stage of black lung, called progressive massive fibrosis. If you were to look at a lung that has uh, this advanced stage of disease, it looks like a burnt paper bag, and the ability to breathe is reduced even more. Uh, black lung is fatal. Uh, there's no cure except a lung transplant. And um, the worst stage of disease miners have described to us 
watching their parents die, essentially slowly suffocating to death. Howard first became interested in black lung in 2010. He had been reporting on the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster, which, if you're not familiar with this tragedy, is when a coal dust explosion killed 29 people in West Virginia. Families of seven of the deceased miners had autopsies performed on their loved ones. The results showed that six of the seven had contracted black lung and that at least one had the advanced stage of the disease. Also striking was the fact that some of those miners were relatively young and hadn't worked that long uh, in coal mines. And so not only was there an extraordinarily high rate of disease among those miners, uh, but the miners were uh, contracting the disease at much younger ages than had been typical in the past. It usually takes decades for black lung to take hold of a miner. Coal dust is actually big enough to be coughed out of the lungs. Over time, of course, it will accumulate, but people who study black lung say that it can take decades for things to get serious. But what what we're seeing is younger miners not only coming down with black lung, but with advanced stages of disease and the disease progressing much more quickly than it used to. It used to be, you know, you heard about miners with black lung, you know, in their late 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s. Now, it's not uncommon to hear about miners in their uh, 30s and 40s. Howard says that one reason for this is that miners aren't just breathing in coal dust these days. As coal is removed from the earth, the supply underground becomes thinner. So rather than digging into large reserves and extracting pure coal, miners drill into rock and coal at the same time. In central Appalachia, that rock is quartz. And when you cut quartz, you get a very fine dust called silica. And silica is far more toxic, far more damaging to lungs than coal dust alone. Um, Silica will settle into the lungs and it will stay there forever. So the thinking is that there's been more exposure to uh, silica dust as there's been more cutting of rock with coal and that that's what's causing uh, the advanced stage of disease that uh, we're seeing now. In Howard's December story, he discovered that cases of advanced black lung were at least 10 times what federal data suggested. To understand why the numbers are so different, Howard had to understand the delicate imbalance between federal regulations, mining, and the culture of coal. The Appalachian region stretches north from the tip of Mississippi to southern New York. Coal runs through the heart of the region, and the industry has played a huge and sometimes solitary economic role for communities and states like Kentucky and West Virginia. Many of the people who live in coal communities settle in the valleys of the Appalachian Mountains. The families in these hollows, or what the locals call hollers, have been there for generations. And, and coal mining is often the biggest economic driver, in some cases the only economic driver, and it provides the best jobs by far. Um, I talked to a young coal miner who was just a few years out of high school in West Virginia uh, who was making more than $70,000 a year mining coal. And, um, you know, the coal miners are the ones who have the best houses, the best pickup trucks, um, the... Uh, all-terrain vehicles, the best you know, shotguns and hunting rifles, um, uh, because they make really good money. They get health benefits. And you cannot replace those jobs. There's nothing else like it in most of Appalachia. And it's not just the benefits that draw people to the mines. 
Many miners have told Howard they love the work itself. It's hard work. It's collaborative. They're working with other people. Your, you know, your life depends on, on the miner you're working next to often because you're around heavy equipment that's moving all over the place. It's a dangerous job. Uh, they take great pride in being coal miners. And they, you know, miners love the work. That's, I, I have yet to meet a miner who doesn't tell me that. But this passion for the work also comes with a fear that it might be taken away. Any threat to the coal mining industry is a threat to their very way of life. This, Howard said, can pose a challenge to reporters. In Appalachia in particular, people there are used to reporters from national news organizations, you know, um, parachuting in and um, basically repeating the stereotypes that, that the reporters have heard and kind of doing stories that are dismissive or demonizing of people in Appalachia. So they don't trust reporters from out of town. Uh, many people view talking to a reporter as a threat to their jobs, to the local economy, to their family members, somebody who um, is quoted in the media. The, the fear is that not only might they lose their job, but their brother might lose his job. Um, their wife might lose her job. Uh, they might be... Um, ostracized by their neighbors. And so it's very difficult to find people uh, to talk to you who are working miners. Once they're retired, um, you know, once they feel that they have no hope of going back to work, uh, they're more open. Howard was in touch with a number of clinics, doctors, and lawyers who helped him connect with patients and clients. One of those patients was 39-year-old Mackie Branham, a former Kentucky coal miner who had developed an advanced stage of black lung. I'll probably be the first one to be this bad in the family. For it to actually be this progressive and in this bad of shape. I mean, don't get me wrong, they can't breathe, but they can still get up and walk around and do stuff. Even though he was unable to work, Mackie was still very reluctant to speak. That was tough. Uh, I talked to him on the phone many times. I emailed him copies of my earlier stories about black lung and about coal mining to give him a sense of who I was as a reporter, how serious I am about the issue, how I've treated um, other miners in my stories and the coal industry, how, um, you know, I what I thought I was displaying was being fair and complete in my stories and not being dismissive or demeaning. Um, of the people who are in my stories. At first, he was very interested in talking with me, um, but actually when I traveled to Kentucky and we were set to meet, he backed out. Um, and uh, it took some uh, persuasion. But Mackey's reluctance to talk wasn't just about Howard or going public with his story. He backed out in part because uh, it's very difficult for Mackey to talk without being out of breath. It's difficult for him to do anything without being out of breath. And meeting me um, required for him what was a long drive. The doctor eventually persuaded Mackey, telling him how important the story was. And Mackey finally agreed. They met at the office of a radiologist in Pikeville, Kentucky. We first looked at some of uh, his x-rays, uh, which looked terrible. And um, uh, 
and we just sat and talked. And once, you know, once he was there, you know, he was willing to stay and talk as much as possible. Um, but right away, the process of talking was really hard for him. The more I talk, the more I get out of breath. It's just a lot of pressure in my chest all the times. Mackey spent 19 years in the mines before he could no longer work. But even though mining made Mackey sick, he told Howard he'd still go back. I've always been a coal miner. And if they would give me lungs to where I could go back tomorrow, I would. It's just in my blood. Uh, and he, he is on a, a waiting list for a lung transplant. And if he gets new lungs, he won't go back to work. Uh, lung transplants last maybe five to ten years on average, uh, but eventually the body rejects them. And Mackie was hoping, you know, to make the graduations of his kids. Uh, one of them just graduated from high school. He went, he, you know, sent him off to the prom and he was very excited and very happy that he, he made that. He'd like to see them go to college if possible. He'd like to see grandkids and he's not certain whether he will. Every year, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, packs up its van and drives to coal communities across the country, offering free black lung screenings. The federal agency researches workplace hazards and makes recommendations for safety regulations. They also collect data on how many miners have contracted black lung. This data is used to inform the federal programs that provide benefits to sick coal miners. By law, NIOSH is only allowed to test working miners. Part of what's been happening and part of the reason there's so many more cases being reported now is that uh, the coal industry has um, uh, retracted significantly in the last few years. Tens of thousands of miners have lost their jobs. Mines have closed. As a result of that, there are miners who um, are out of work. In past years, they'd wait till mines reopen, but with the way the coal industry is these days, there isn't much hope of mines reopening. So they, um, they want to get checked to see if they have black lung, because if they do, they can collect black lung benefits. They can get wage replacement payments. Uh, they can also get medical benefits through a federal program. Most working miners, the only ones being tested by NIOSH, haven't been in the mines very long, so they're less likely to have the more advanced disease. Plus, the testing is voluntary, and many miners choose not to opt in. So even though NIOSH is testing tens of thousands of miners, they're only getting a small fraction of people who may have the disease. All of this is why NIOSH reported only 99 cases of advanced black lung out of a five-year period. But when Howard began to ask black lung clinics across Appalachia about the number of cases they were seeing, he found the number to be much higher. According to his findings, 962 miners had been diagnosed with the disease since 2010, which is 10 times what NIOSH had reported over a similar time period. And while the federal agency's scope was national, Howard at this point had only collected data from 11 clinics across five states. The reason it's a challenge is because uh, the federally funded black lung clinics are not required to keep track of progressive massive fibrosis, the advanced stage of disease. 
so they don't generally. They're also, um, they're also not required to keep electronic records. So what they have are, uh, you know, thousands of, of uh, file folders with uh, documents in them. And so for many clinics, there was really no easy way to, you couldn't just go to a computer and punch a few, you know, keys and come up with uh, how many cases you've had over any particular period of time. Even though it was difficult to get the data from lawyers and clinics, Howard said he figured out fairly quickly that something was wrong with the federal numbers. And really, within three phone calls, um, I had this outline of what was going on. It didn't take long at all. The government performs all sorts of research and keeps all kinds of data. But for Howard, it was what wasn't in the data that made his story. I think the really important takeaway from all this is that we often think of government agencies as the organizations that have all the data. And this is an example of one of those things where, for years and years, uh, government agencies, Congress, um, policymakers, uh, the White House have all depended on uh, NIOSH's analysis of how many cases of disease there are. And there was good reason for that. But nobody bothered to ask you know, a much deeper question, which is, okay, well, how do they know that? And might there be more disease? You know, I'm like one guy sitting at a laptop computer, and I was able to figure out that the agency that has been relied on for decades for the information that drives public policy wasn't providing a complete picture. Since December, Howard has continued to work with clinics and lawyers across the country. He's found that many have been eager to help if they can. Um, in the first go-round in December, you know, one clinic devoted uh, some uh, uh, some staff to to going through the records for like two or three weeks to pull data for me. Um, and since that time, uh, another uh, physician has uh, done the same kind of thing and actually hired somebody, a college student, to go through uh, his data. And an attorney uh, has done the same thing for me. Um, and some of the clinics just decided it was important enough that they were going to do it. Since then, the number of cases of advanced black lung Howard has found has more than doubled, though Howard said there's one major caveat to his findings. Those cases are not um, independently confirmed. Still, Howard believes the numbers indicate a desperate need to reevaluate federal black lung data. And in response to his report, that's exactly what some agencies have begun to do. The federal agencies involved, the Labor Department, Health and Human Services, uh, and, and uh, NIOSH, um, they've uh, um, actually agreed to work together to get a, a, a firm number of cases of disease, number one. And number two, to try to assess the impact on the federal black lung uh, disability program. That federal program, called the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, serves as a safety net for minors who can't work because of the disease. Coal companies pay into the fund, but over the last several years, the program has amassed billions of dollars of debt. Uh, so there's concern that with uh, more disease and with more serious disease and with more serious disease among younger minors, the federal program um, uh, will be taxed significantly trying to respond. The Government Accountability Office is looking into the trust, which is in danger of having its funding cut by 50% within the next two years. 
And uh, Congress has uh, also uh, responded by providing for the first time in at least five years a budget increase for the federally funded um, uh, black lung clinics across the country. Uh, And there's uh, been uh, bills introduced that would increase that funding even more uh, and also um, uh, provide authority to, to... figure out how many cases there really are and to, uh, to bolster that trust fund. In July, Howard published a follow-up piece that reported an additional 1,000 advanced black lung cases, which brings NPR's count to 20 times the number of official cases from NIOSH. And Howard believes that this is just the beginning. There are many, many more clinics, including uh, clinics and, and physicians and lawyers in what is considered the hotspot area for this disease in Appalachia, plus in other parts of the country uh, where coal is mined that we haven't heard from. NIOSH, uh, the NIOSH scientists agree, independent scientists agree, that um, this is an indication of uh, what they've called the one of the worst uh, medical industrial disasters in American history, um, something that they've never seen before with this disease and something that is just completely shocking to them. And these are people who've spent 30 and 40 years working on this stuff. Thanks for listening. We don't want to end the story without mentioning Ohio Valley resource reporter Benny Becker, who contributed to the Black Lung investigation. You can find links to Howard's original story, his most recent update, and the Ohio Valley resource version of the project in the episode notes. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Emily Hopkins reported this story. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson. Podcast.